From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz 17 at the JW Marriott Desert Ridge in Phoenix, Arizona. On this week's edition, it's all GreenBiz 17 all the time. We're going to hear from some of the uh, guests and some of the highlights and some of the, the speakers and uh, just all that was going on with uh, all the many moving parts of this amazing and exhausting event. It's the greening of the desert this week on 350. It's February 17th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, we're live on tape in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. We've just concluded the uh, ninth annual Green Biz Conference, and I'm here with senior writer Heather Clancy. Heather, how are you doing? I am exhausted, as are you, but what a great week filled with energy and hope and lots of dreams and hopefully courage. Lots of courage and lots of great content, too. I mean, first of all, just about the conference itself. As I said, this is the ninth annual, but it's also the biggest in many, many respects. Um, uh, I think we had over 900 uh, people this year, a, a, a really record crowd for, for this event. Um, but it, more than the quantity, uh, is also the quality of the experience. People were clearly hungry, thirsty, just needing um, some hope and, as you said, courage and, and, and inspiration. This is really the first sustainable business conference of the Trump era. And there was a lot of concern, a lot of engagement, just a lot of uh, confusion and, and w willingness to roll up sleeves and, and dig in deeper. And that was a really interesting part of the week. Yeah, I, I took a moment to... Uh Pre, pre, you know, ahead of the conference to to go out on the biomimicry hike in the desert here in in uh, Phoenix. One of the things that struck me is how many of those principles can apply to what we're doing. And now that we new, need this new leadership, right? We need to to pause to think about the things to to be more flexible, like that the saguaro cactuses in the, in this desert here in some, in Phoenix. I really felt like uh, the people that that were here feel feel ready to take on this challenge. So tell us more about that hike. I didn't get to go on it. I had a lot of moving parts going on all week. Uh, what was the hike? And for people who don't know what a biomimicry hike is, uh, what was going on, Heather? Biomimicry, I mean, people think of it about as a, as a product design or a, a thing design movement. Um, you take principles of nature, like nature's ability to adapt to a forest fire, a tree that lives through a fire. And, or in this case, I didn't even know this, but cacti, they're subjected to fires and they live through them. I saw this 120-year-old cactus that had gone through a fire, obviously dropped certain parts of the of its of its carcass and then moved on. Um, but the, but the, the the idea of the hike was to take people out in nature to get them thinking about um, strategies and so forth that could be informed by nature, not just product designs but leadership. So being more flexible, sitting out in nature and looking at something, looking at the shape of it, and and using it in your own life. I had the great experience uh, back in uh, 2001 to go on a nature hike with Janine Benyus, who uh, mm -hmm. coined the word biomimicry, wrote the book by that title in the 1990s, um, in a really sort of mundane county park in Connecticut. And um, uh, she managed, because she's such a gifted storyteller, to turn every thing that you could see, every twig, every little bush, every uh, animal, whatever, into a story, a design inspiration, a lesson about interdependency. It's just fascinating stuff when you can get someone. Was it was that kind of what you were getting? So yes, but, but like I said, one of the principles we talked about was integrating the unexpected. So in many ways, this political climate we're, we're now facing is the unexpected. We Many people have been lulled into thinking we'd won these battles. We had convinced the world, um, but but we haven't. And now that this has happened, how do you how do you take this in? How do you recalibrate your thinking? Um, so for me, yes, the, the you know, that twig, how could the shape of that be used uh, to, to, to design water repellent, um, you know, I mean, the leaves, some of them capture the moisture, some of them repel the moisture. How can you use that in a product? But certainly also, how do you use that in your life, in your business strategy? Yeah, that political component was kind of an interesting piece of this because there was, a, you know, this is a crowd that doesn't get that political, doesn't get that angry, it's kind of polite crowd. And I tried to shake things up a little bit in the intro, uh, the, the opening uh, words I, I gave on uh, 
Tuesday afternoon. Um, and I said, among other things, and I think the thing that got tweeted a lot and, and, and resonated, I heard, kept hearing back, is that Donald Trump is sustainability's stress test. In other words, this is something we didn't have a plan for, we didn't expect. It's that classic uh, black swan, which is the low probability, high impact event. And um, and this was our time, and this was um, this is our moment to step up. And I think uh, the way I closed the event on Thursday, I, I, I sort of circled back to that, and I said – you know, it is uh, our stress test this moment, but it, it also stands to be our finest hour. This is, I think, a really – and people that, – that was a palpable feeling that people said, we can do this. It's on us now. We, we know what to expect from government, and, and this is something that that we need to do. No one else is going to do it, and um, we've got this. That was kind of cool. Absolutely. I felt like the energy – immediately ramped up in the room when when you mentioned that and i think every i think a lot of people agreed this 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 community has been very polite and has been very successful but but not not as vocal and perhaps not as vocal in a way that we're <laughs> that we're perhaps not as used to you know loud and proud is what we need to get to yep. Before we listen in on some of the segments of the actual conference, and so we're going to bring in a number of those over the, the next while, uh, bring in one other member of our team, Anya Kalamizer, who's our associate editor. And this was your first event, uh, first Green Biz event, that is. And uh, you also played a kind of a cool role in that event uh, at Sideware. Tell us, first of all, what were your impressions and uh, what did you think? Joel, it's great to be out here in Phoenix with the entire Green Biz team. I had the pleasure of hosting Sidebar with Elaine Shea, our uh, director of Verge programming, and she and I were interacting with our virtual audience. We had 1,300 or more people from all over the U.S. and abroad register online, and it was a chance for people who were watching the conference and who couldn't be here to speak with each other and also ask questions of the panelists and participants. Questions? Yeah, the great the sidebar is really a kind of a cool way to integrate the in the room program with the uh, virtual virtual program, the, the thirteen hundred or more people watching the live stream, and to show both parties, uh, both the people in the room, see that there's another event taking place online, and the people online actually get to interact not just one and with one another, but with the people on stage, as you said, and to have real avatars, you and Elaine, in the room that they can see on camera. It's it's sort of a nice uh, nice way to integrate the. Uh, uh, online with the in the room. They also had exclusive content. For example, we did breakout interviews with some of the panelists on stage. We spoke with George Bandy of Mohawk. We spoke with um, we spoke with Ian Rosenberger of Thread International. We um, and so it it was also a way for them to get a, a little bit more value out of the conference. Great, Anya. So glad you could take part in what I think will be the first of many Green Biz events. I hope so, Joel. It was great spending this time in the desert with you. And whether you were watching online or whether you were able to join us here at Green Biz, I hope you come away inspired. Heather, one of the great sessions that you did was an interview with Mahmoud Khan, the chief scientific officer for PepsiCo, uh, impressive man with an incredible resume, and you had a great conversation about it. What, what, what were your highlights? So, uh, yeah, absolutely amazing conversation. I, I didn't know this, but I mean, he, he's a medical doctor. That's what, that he tw spent 20 years. Endocrinologist. Yes, exactly, which is so important for what he's, his role is there that to not only improve the sustainability, the health of the company, but to improve the health benefits of the products that they have. And that has been one of the you know big challenges for Pepsi over the last 10 years. They've been focusing on this performance with purpose mission since then. Um, and the, the latest earnings, they came out and said um, that about 45% of their revenue is now tied to those healthier products, right? Not the fizzy stuff um, or the snack foods that are bad for you. But um, you know that, that, that's an accomplishment, but they have a long, long way to go. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that uh, only 25% of the revenue these days comes from from uh, beverages like that, um, and only 10% of the revenue comes from products that are called Pepsi, but they have things like Quaker Oats and Sabra hummus and, and uh, uh, Naked Juice and, and a whole range of products there uh, around the world, um, and increasingly looking at, at how do you actually improve people's lives. Uh, first of all, the ones who buy and consume the products, but very much looking at the supply chain too. 
Right. And and actually, that was one of the highlights of the conversation. Um, you know, I pushed back and said, you know, may, lots of big companies talk about how much accomplished they've accomplished. And uh, Mr. Dr. Khan mentioned, you know, hey, we, we did these great things with water, but we can't. This is only this very small percentage of our impact on water. So they are now really forcing accountability throughout their supply chain. Um, and they promised to hold those companies responsible. And you don't sign this code of ethics, you don't get to this point, um, you're out. Here's what he had to say about that. We have at PepsiCo a code of conduct for all of our employees. It's a practice and every PepsiCo employee, wherever you are in the world, has the right to be treated under that code of conduct. One thing the team noticed was that if you were a supplier to PepsiCo, whether you were a franchise partner, a supplier, all the way up to the farm, you had no legal requirement. Your employer as a supplier didn't have a legal requirement to be, be treated under that code of conduct. We've announced under the PWP 25 that by 2025, every single supplier of ours will be expected to comply to our code of conduct all the way to their farm worker. That is huge. Now, it's going to take thousands and thousands of contracts to be rewritten as they come up for renewal, which is why we need the time. But we felt it was time to put a stick in the so ground. So you're, you're going to hold people it's accountable? Going to be, it's going to be a requirement that our code of conduct applies to our suppliers now. That's a huge step forward. <laughs> if nothing else, just think about child labor. Right. Think about bonded labor. Think about labor practices. Code of conduct is going to cover those. And if PepsiCo can do it, you're talking about we're hoping others will follow now. If it's, that should become the global norm. Every human being has a right to some basic rights. Water, labor practices, a decent income, at least to be able to support themselves, etc. The other thing that struck me was their commitment to the sustainable development goals. Every single strategy they have on the, on their, again, performance with purpose side is tied to one of those goals, which is really important when you think about them pulling in the smaller companies, like to the point about the supply chain, these communities. The global goals are really going to be pulled off locally, and that came out in the, in the conversation. It also came out in our 2017 State of Green Business Report. That was one of the 10 trends that we identified, which is how these global goals, these 17 uh, sustainable development goals that came out in 2015, are actually now be, being operationalized inside companies and in some cases are even becoming core to business strategy. So it's great to see that uh, PepsiCo was uh, sort of an exemplar of that. Absolutely. As you said before, Heather, uh, one of the themes here was courage, and we heard that uh, from George Bandy, who talked about uh, you know courage to dream. We we heard that uh, from uh, Annie Leonard, the executive director of Greenpeace USA. We heard it from Ann Kelly from Ceres, who runs the the Bicep, the political action uh, initiative there for businesses. Uh, I mean, there was just a lot of uh, a lot of interesting talk about courage. Not something you often hear at corporate sustainability conferences. I honestly think that your comments at the beginning of the conference really helped people start feel comfortable. I mean, Ann Kelly, I think one of the she had a number of really extraordinarily important things to say. And the fact, one of the things that struck me was her comments about safety in numbers. A series orchestrated this amazing letter. It came out just two days after the election, um, really stating their position about why they, they supported this regardless of the administration. And they got 700 or more companies to sign on to this too. Not necessarily at the CEO level, a lot of them were sustainability executives, but just the fact that so many big companies and smaller ones were putting their name on this call to to then President elect Trump to not back away from the Paris goals, the COP21 commitments uh, that the United States made. Uh, that was that was meaningful, and it was uh, sort of the first salvo, if you will, by business to the the new administration about you know no, we do not want to backpedal on climate change or frankly so many other environmental issues. But yeah, let's listen to Anne. What's different is it's more important than ever to actually go and educate lawmakers. And lawmaker education isn't always lobbying, it's sometimes just lawmaker education. So there are lots of avenues to let your congressperson or woman know about the work you're doing and why it's so important to you. And also to understand that we could lose a lot right now at the federal level. 
some of, some of the most important accomplishments in the last eight years are at great risk, including the Paris Agreement and our membership in the UNFCCC, the CAFE regulations, I could go on. We need to convey that we want to hold on to the environmental law infrastructure that has brought us where we are today and not fall victim to the lure of cutting red tape and, and cutting all sorts of regulations, because actually that's not what we want. We also need to be on the offense and look at creative strategies like carbon pricing that were just held up this past week and convey why actually putting a price on carbon is the right market mechanism and that's why all the economists agree on it. The way in which corporate responsibility has changed is that you know, it no longer is enough to just do great things operationally, which is of vital importance. SBTs, RE100, all the great things you all are doing. It's really important to talk about it in two critical ways. It's important to tell lawmakers the business case that you all know so well. Do, help them do the math, which they haven't done. Get the politics out of the way, allow the business case to transcend the political divide, which you can do so well. Not red, not blue, it's purple. And then tell those success stories out loud in various forms of media, the money you're saving, the emissions you're bringing down, the materials that you're recycling, and tell it again and again and again. Lawmakers really need to hear this. Actually, companies are very talented at talking to lawmakers about their own innovation and sustainability, and I, I see it all the time at the federal level as well as in state houses. And these are done in private conversations. But I've heard many companies tell their story, talk about job creation, talk about cost savings, talk about the value of energy efficiency, about the procurement of renewable energy, and it, it's very effective, actually. So I think they're very good spokespersons. I was in one meeting with the transition team prior to the inaugural, and the with a particular sector, and the transition team members were saying, well, well, tell us about the last eight years and everything you need us to cut. How bad was it these last eight years? We're taking notes. And the CEOs in that meeting say, well, actually, you know, it's, last year's been pretty good for us. We really believe in the regulatory infrastructure that was put in place for our particular sector, and it's actually really worked, and we hope that you'll keep those systems in place. Only they said it, you know, with, with a great level of detail that I think the, the transition team members found convincing. So there is nothing like the stories the people in this room can tell. Yeah, there were just, Annie <laughs> was a quote machine. I mean, safety in numbers, right? So I think a lot of organizations have been frightened to speak out and um, because of the, 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 the 140 character implications of, of, that, of doing so, they're afraid of being the target. But as you know it, Nord, she referenced uh, Nordstrom's took Donald Trump on this week and, and won. Well, at least their stock went down, but then it went up. And so uh, they seem to have survived that uh, little uh, uh, Ivanka ordeal. Uh, the other person who was really preaching this uh, was uh, gospel of courage and tough love was, was another, Annie Leonard, the executive director of Greenpeace USA. Um, I think it was a little, uh, actually, I know it was a little off-putting for some of the people in the audience to have Greenpeace in the room. And, uh, you know, companies are afraid, I think, of, of Greenpeace. They don't want to engage with them. They don't want to, I, one person actually said, you know, don't want to legitimize them. I have a feeling they were actually legitimate well before they showed up in Phoenix this week. Uh, but, but Annie Leonard talked about, first of all, the fact that, you know, she wants businesses to succeed. She wants, you know, companies to be profitable and, and do as well as they, they can. Um, but she also offered her own version of tough love. In fact, kind of gave a little bit of Valentine's uh, message for uh, companies. It's kind of interesting. Let's, let's listen to that. Um, protest is, is necessary and insufficient. We have to protest absolutely for sure. That gets people to the table. It shifts the goalposts of the discourse. It's absolutely a crucial tool within our um, democracy. And if you look at major changes in our country throughout history, protest has been involved in, I think, every single one. If you can think of one that didn't have protest involved in some way, let me know. But it's a really valuable tool we have in our citizen toolbox, and it's not enough. But um, the great thing about Greenpeace is that we are really good at collaboration and we are really good at confrontation. And it's really up to you which, which menu you want on the item. I mean, we, we can do either one. Um, we prefer collaboration. It's a lot easier to sit at a table and go through your supply chain and figure out solutions than it is to climb a crane and hang up 300 feet in the air for 16 hours, but we'll do whatever it takes, and we'll do both. And in addition to our own skills at either collaboration or confrontation, we also have our millions and millions of members around the world, and that's probably the most powerful tool that we have. Um, it allows us a huge political muscle in that we have millions of citizens and consumers around the world that are ready to act. We have that. It also allows us independence. 
because we are supported by individuals, we don't take money from any corporations or from any government, which means that we really can be led by the science. Um, so, so it's really up to you if you want to collaborate or, or if we want to escalate to confrontation. But we always start with collaboration first. It's, it's easier and quicker for both of us. <laughs> We'd much prefer to be sitting on a table than hanging on a crane, but we will have no hesitation to do either. So what, one your of choice. The, one <laughs> of the things that struck me, uh, and I've, I've told you this, um, is that when I hear about a lot of the things that companies do, some of the, the, the big uh, significant commitments that they make, uh, and I ask them, what's driving this? Often, I don't know the percentage, but often it comes down to one of two things, Walmart and Greenpeace. Uh, so I want to talk, explore a little bit about how you engage with companies, and I think a lot of companies, you know, there was that or that, and, and, and by the way, some of those people, you know, will publicly, at least in their jobs, be adversaries, but privately they're saying, thank you, Greenpeace, you made, I've been trying to get this through the C-suite for a long time, and now we've got their attention, thanks to what you, you know, said or did or hung from our building or spray painted on our roof or whatever. No, no, we don't spray paint. Oh, I'm sorry. But... <laughs> lovingly embedded we're, we're with flowers on the roof. I don't know, whatever you do. Um, how, do company, how should companies think about engaging with others? What, first of all, basically, what, what do you do when Greenpeace calls? Well, it sounds cliche, but you pick up the phone and talk to us. I mean, we don't bite. We have a lot of information. We um, have amazing research departments and science. A um, couple of things to keep in mind. One is to realize that it's not actually about you. It's about the scientific problem that we're trying to solve. I mean, we don't start by looking at all these companies and saying, which one should we go after? We start with what the problem is, whether it's deforestation or species loss or carbon emissions or whatever it is. And we do lots of analysis to figure out what's driving that problem. Where are the lever points in what's driving it? And that's what gets us to you. So there's a mythology that we sort of pick a big company because it's great publicity and go after them. We have a long journey before we get to you. Phil Radford, your, your predecessor, said you take about 18 months to design a campaign in terms of doing the research and understanding the various moving parts. Yeah, we, we really are into our research and really understanding this. When we do come to you, also realize that not everybody in here, but almost everybody in here, we actually want you to exist. We want your company to function. Um, we want a thriving, healthy environment, but we also want a thriving, healthy economy. And so us calling you and sharing our information is actually like free consulting. I mean, one thing you can definitely know when we call is we're not going to ask you for money. So you might as well listen to us and hear what we have but, to say. But, but, but Annie, I mean, I get it, and that's, that's a, it's, a, it's a great selling point, but I think just naturally there are companies that that don't want to let you into the tent. It's just the, the minute that you are, you know, obviously to do consulting, they've got to open, open the tent in some ways. And, and that's scary. And so I don't know that there's a big appetite for that. Even though, even though the people that, you know, in this room who may be the one that you're engaging with may be all for it. That's a tough sell internally. Well, I'll tell you um, another thing to know when we call is that we don't go away easily. If you don't pick up the phone, we're not going to leave. <laughs> I mean, you know, th this is what we do. This is our absolute passion. Um, it's not just a job. We could all be making more money and be more comfortable doing something else. But we're doing this because we deeply, deeply care. So we're not going to go away. That's one thing. The other thing to know is that the thing which just infuriates us and our members more than anything else is lack of transparency. And today, with um, the internet and the sort of instant gratification of information that people have access to, more than ever before, the public demands transparency. So it's harder to hide, and it's stupider to hide. You might as well just bring us in, and let's have a conversation. One more thing to don't do is don't pay a ton of money to some loser consultant who will tell you to just wait us out because we're not going to go away. And don't send some like you know sustainability intern or PR slack or lawyer. We want to actually talk with someone who has the ability to make change in the company. Um, like we're, we're actually serious about making change. We can't just be tossed a bone and have us leave. You know, Joel, one of the things that stuck with me, I mean, of, of Annie's talk, was um, her sort of position. She, she, she described herself as a single mom. And she has a, a daughter. A soccer mom, actually. A soccer, sing, a soccer mom, that's right. <laughs> Annie Leonard, Greenpeace director, soccer mom. Um, and she challenged the companies in the room 
to not make have her make the choice. Why should she have to be the research expert? Why should she have to sort through the data? She wants products to be there that don't require her to choose. She shouldn't have to choose between this product that's going to be bad for her or this product that's cheaper. And she challenged the companies to think differently about that. It's not her responsibility as a consumer. She pushed the, the you know sort of the producer responsibility thing out there pretty pretty loudly. Heather, you mentioned earlier your conversation with Mahmoud Khan, the chief scientific officer from PepsiCo. We had some other chief officers who were not from sustainability and particularly in the area of finance. We had the treasurer uh, of Starbucks, uh, Drew Wolf, and the uh, CFO, chief financial officer from Levi Strauss, Harmeet Singh, along with the chief sustainability officer, Michael Kabori. Um, and it was really interesting in both of those cases to hear from the CFO or the, the, the financial part of the company how they think about sustainability. Of course, we were listening to two very progressive companies, Starbucks and Levi Strauss. So this wasn't exactly you know the, a mining company or some other you know dirtier technology. Um, but they're still leaders in one way or the other. And Starbucks in particular had uh, issued one of the largest green bonds uh, financing mechanism that enabled uh, them to tap into uh, funding from outside to to do take on some of their sustainability initiatives. And the conversation between the CSO and the CFO of Levi Strauss was particularly interesting because there was a great lesson on how a sustainability executive needs to and has, in this case, successfully engaged with the chief financial officer to make the case and the high standard that the CFO holds the CSO to in terms of here's what this needs to do in order for me to fund it. So you know, let's listen a little bit to that conversation. First up is uh, Harmeet Singh, and then we'll hear from uh, Michael Kabori. Now, the journey for me um, when the bedrock or the foundation was so solid in terms of believing on sustainability. Really, uh, I've been with the company about four years, and I became a believer about uh, you know two years ago. And uh, it's important for all of you out there, you know, if you want to drive sustainability through the organization, it's important for all of us to start converting the non-believers to believers. And I think uh, what resonated with me was a couple of things. Uh, first. Uh, it needs to make uh, financial and business sense. Uh, so, for example, you know, I've talked about waterless. I'm wearing jeans that are waterless. Uh, and, and in essence, uh, you know, we, uh, these waterless jeans use 96% less water uh, in the co-manufacturing process, uh, which is denim, uh, you know, in terms of finishing denim. And it does two things. First, it helps the planet. Um, by using a scarce, less of a scarce resource. But more importantly, it's, uh, it's pr produced at a lower cost. Uh, and about four cents uh, a product lower than other products, which means it does drive margins. Uh, and today, about 40% of our product volume are waterless, going to 50%, and by 2020, getting to... Um, close to 80%. So that's the first piece is, is there a financial or business case? The second is, you know, being a CFO, it's important for me to ensure that we are able to drive and sustain value. And uh, value for, for me is driven by a win for the consumer. And we are just beginning to unlock a lot of uh, marketing around our sustainable products because millennials, you know, love, uh, you know, anything that's sustainable. Uh, and, you know, we in the past haven't done a great job communicating our sustainable story to the end consumer. So, you know, the first piece is a win to the consumer. The second is, it's got to be a win to the manufacturer. And uh, as we create more demand, it leads to more production. So it's a win for the manufacturer. And the third is a win to the company, uh, both in terms of driving your core value as well as, you know, growing profits. Well, Joel, I... As I mentioned, I've been at the company almost 20 years, and for most of that time, you know, we're a privately held company. The family owns the company still, and they've been very supportive, right? It's part of the legacy of, of Levi's and of our family CEOs over the years. But five years ago, when our current CEO, Chip Berg, uh, arrived, and when he brought Harmeet, uh, there was definitely a new sheriff or sheriffs in town, 
and there was going to be much more of an emphasis in our company on financial discipline. Uh, that was part of the turnaround that they were brought in to engineer. And so from the beginning, I realized, hey, we've kind of relied on that family support for many years. But I said, we need, we need to be able to quantify the financial value of our sustainability investments. And so the first thing we did, we went out and looked at, okay, how do we do that? We settled on something called the value driver model, which allows us to look at sustainability investments in three ways. First, like Harmeet mentioned, risk management, we quantified that. The second is productivity and costs, we quantified that. And the third is growth, and that includes innovation and brand building and revenues. And so we worked directly with the finance team, my partner in the supply chain, because I report to our chief supply chain officer, so my partner there, who's the VP of Supply Chain Finance, and I worked on this, and we ended up presenting it to the board, and it laid a very good foundation with the board and with the new leadership on the value of sustainability. The, the other thing I did, I knew I had to start thinking more like a finance person, and I am not a finance person, right? I'm a human rights guy. And, and so we went out and partnered actually with our treasurer, and our VP of Supply Chain Finance, and we went to the International Finance Corporation, the IFC, and the, we got together this program called Global Trade Supplier Finance, GTSF. The IFC provides short-term financing to our vendors. The catch is that for our vendors who perform better on sustainability, they get a lower interest rate from, the, from, from the IFC. The vendors actually save literally from tens to $100,000 on this kind of financing. It's the first time our vendors are getting an actual financial incentive for sustainability. It was a great program. I got to speak the language of finance, and now I'm considered like this financial deal maker, and so I can actually work with finance to identify financial instruments. I had the opportunity to interview Drew about the uh, the Starbucks strategy earlier this this year, and uh, and what struck me was that it wasn't a, a strategy founded in sustainability at all. It was the best way for him to make that money. So, and you know, when you think about how to get other companies involved, here's the advice he had. In May of 2016, Starbucks issued the. Um, we were the first investment grade U.S. corporate issuer of a sustainability bond. So think green bond on renewable energy, sustainability is everything else. And what, is, what makes it a sustainability bond? Well, the use of proceeds from that bond was ring-fenced to expand our efforts in those three areas I just talked about, in growing our cafe practices sourcing program, uh, in building more farmer support centers around the world, and in expanding um, the credit we have available for, for farmer lending. And um, the results. Well, internally, it's been powerful. Uh, just, it gives me the impetus as, as treasurer to help convene um, people internally to keep raising the bar to find new projects to fund. But externally, it's been even more powerful. So what we found was it opened up Starbucks to a whole new pool of money and any time when you're in competition for global capital, that's powerful. And for example, in this $500 million bond in May, um, we had 40 new investors to Starbucks. 22 of those were explicitly ESG investors, um, but more importantly, you know, several were just, that's how they invest, uh, like Japanese life insurance companies. And everybody asked, can you, can you show that you got a better price? Um, that's really hard to show when you're talking, you get into basis points and new issue concessions. And, but I do know this, I issued a normal bond at the same time. And uh, you typically get an initial amount of interest and then you, you lower the coupon in the morning that you issue and, and people fall out. And the normal bond ended up being about, went from 6x oversubscribed to 3x oversubscribed. And the uh, sustainability bond stayed at 6. So, my sense was that people were in, they, want, they wanted to do the right thing and they wanted to invest in the right thing. So I'm gonna close with my uh, call to action, which is first, uh, do you know who your treasurer is? <laughs> have you met with her recently and, and talked about what you have going on in sustainability? 
and uh, what, what, what kind of innovative things could they finance? I think they're more than willing to get involved. And, and I will also make the offer that uh, I'd be happy to talk to any treasurer um, from one of your companies. You know, there are so many great topics this week, uh, so many things on supply chain, renewable energy, and just sort of the nuts and bolts of getting stuff done. And I, I really encourage people to go in and, and watch the live stream. You can uh, sample around it over the you know many hours of, the, of archived video that we now have. But there are a couple of other great moments, maybe not so nuts and bolts, just inspirational. Um, one of them I know that... that touched you, Heather, is uh, George Bandy from Mohawk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he came on stage and started talking about courage and my heart. It spoke to my heart. And that, I think, is such an important message out of, of this past week. Um, after the conference, I walked away feeling like we have the intellect. Now we, we need to speak with heart. This community needs to speak with heart. And George had a few really specific examples. These are the nine things that Manford Max Neef says that we need in order to sustain life and be successful. Subsistence, protection, affection, understanding, participation, leisure, creation, identity, and freedom. You can find connectivities to business, to life, but what it does not give you is dreaming. Dreaming is what have people doing things that they wouldn't normally do because you see something that you want to have for other folks. This is not about what we gain for ourselves, it's about what we give to other people. That's me with my grandmother, the first sustainability person that I ever met. She didn't throw anything away. <laughs> I still have a quilt that has that bib on it at my house, all right? What I didn't know about her courage and genius was that when she did quilts, she did them for people on the Underground Railroad to be able to tell them which direction to go in. Courage, genius, sustainability, all at the same time. What happened in Flint? We didn't have a dream, we didn't have courage, and we didn't have genius to allow that to happen. We have to commit to doing better. People were crying out, frustrated, upset, not understanding how with all the expertise and technology that we have, we didn't make a commitment to look at the water inside of a city that has so much support for so many industries around that area. Not being able to have good oxygen in communities of concern. No courage, no genius. We have to make these things a part of our process, not excluded from. So I challenge you to have one great idea. I had an opportunity to speak in California and my GPS happened to take me down Skid Row on the way. Who's more connected to nature? Who understands sustaining life on a day-to-day -day balance more than people who are on the street every day? They can give you some insight on some things that you would never understand. How do you harness that ingenuity and understand that innovation? Lots of people are crying out for more understanding. What we need to give them is more genius and more courage to dream in a more sustainable way. And when you talk about the courage to dream, he, he played this awesome clip of this community in Peru that took trash. This, these children turned these, this landfill trash into musical instruments, and it's called the Landfill Harmonic. Um, and it, it spoke to me in particular because before the conference in this past week, I went to the Musical Instrument Museum here in Phoenix, and some of those instruments are there. And I think that's such a great visibility opportunity. That now I, my husband, who doesn't really follow this thing, knows about those instruments and knows about the possibilities, how you can reuse things. And those children, the children that took those instruments and created, cre took that trash and created those instruments are touched by that. And um, George believes that, uh, that people need to speak to the heart. And I think I really took, took a lot away from that particular presentation. George is great. And, and, and you know. Quoting his grandma. <laughs> Quoting his grandma and and how somebody with that kind of inspiration uh, works in a in a carpet company is just a, it's just a great coming together of 
of uh, you know the hardcore business and of real products and such a spectacular vision. The other inspirational thing, and maybe this is the one we'll we'll leave people with, was uh, the way we closed out the day on Tuesday, the first day. It happened to be Valentine's Day, and this was kind of a, a love story in a way, and particularly this was an intergenerational story between a father and a daughter. And not just any father and daughter. The father is Peter Seligman, the co-founder and chairman CEO of Conservation International, this great organization, 30 years old that uh, that he founded 30 years ago. And Leah Seligman, his daughter, uh, who is uh, now with the B team, formerly was the chief sustainability officer at NRG, the big energy company. Um, and um, they had never been on stage together. Uh, all these years, they had never since kindergarten. Since, since he, I think she, he, she was in a Snow White or Cinderella play. I don't remember. Um, and it was just a really great conversation. One of the things that made it great was that it touched on a topic that that we don't often get to in a lot of these conferences, which is about why we do what we do. And inevitably, if you ask people why they do what they do in sustainability, they'll say the same word, family. And this was a case where the, the father-daughter had had you know, been down this uh, path for ever since um, uh, Leah was four years old when her, her father started uh, Conservation International. And, and how they've influenced each other's lives and careers and uh, what the implications are for everyone else in terms of the role of, of storytelling and family in, in sustainability. Yeah, and, and Leah is a new mom, a relatively new mom. And for her, it, it re-energized and re-catalyzed, um, clarified why she does this. So let's hear a little bit of that conversation. I think it goes back to this idea that the stakes are really high. We, it would be easy to bury your head in the sand and just say, let's just wait a few years and let this, this challenge pass us by, but it's not an option. When we think about the climate challenge alone, if we are going to have coral reefs when Quincy is my age, we need to cap global emissions by 2020. And that is huge. That means that every single person in this room and the organizations that you represent have to do something different than they've done before. And with very high stakes, you get huge opportunity and huge upside. And I think that, that's what keeps me going every day, is realizing that there's so much innovation, there's so much excitement, there are so many possibilities that we can unleash if we focus this incredible intention and resources and assets that exist in this room and outside of it on these challenges. We need to focus on the hope. And we have to focus on the extraordinary transformations that are taking place. I mean, we know that today we could actually get in a car and not go to a gas station. Uh, we know that, uh, that there are ways to farm where we can increase the carbon content in the, in, in the soil. Uh, and there's an accelerating factor in that more and more consumers, through the power of social media, are sharing these ideas. I mean, we can look at the dark and be scared to death. We have to be real and see what's happening. But also there's this hopefulness. I mean, there are things that are shifting and changing. Um, if I, I think about what I knew when I started CI, my daughter Leah knew when she was in college. And her children will know when they're 10 or 11 years old. I mean, so... This in terms of how the world works. How, they, how the world works, the interconnectedness, the opportunity, the hopefulness. and so. You know, we need to be real, but we, we can't be frightened. We just have to, we have to just intensify our efforts, and we need high energy. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that has really uh, been, if there's a hallmark of my life, it has been, and this freaked my father out because I would never go to sleep, it was just high energy. And I think that that's what we need to put into this effort. We cannot be satisfied, we cannot be complacent, we need high energy, we need honesty. Yeah. You know, we have to be able to really look at what's happening and call it out. And then we have to really search for what are the solutions. I mean, if we look at the way our food is produced, I mean, if you live in China right now and you cannot breathe the air, drink the water, or eat the food, that is not a very good place to be. And you better figure out an answer and a solution. So, I mean, it's not like there's an option. And that's what we have to realize.
So we just wrapped the ninth year of Green Biz and the third year of really paying attention to the footprint. And responsible for that has been our, our great conference director, Ellie Beekner. Welcome to the show, Ellie. Thank you so much, Heather. Great to be here. So Ellie, um, I know int- intuitively that travel and event business is a pretty high impact business, but um, tell me where, where you focused your attention first, um, either three years ago or now, you know, wh- where did you start when you, when you tried to take this to a zero impact? Yeah, so the really logical place for us to start was with waste. Um, because the events generate so much waste, we're printing so much signage, um, exhibitors are bringing all of their setup materials, um, and, and that generates a lot of waste, printing conference programs, um, and then also the food that goes into producing these conferences. There's just a ton of waste uh, generated throughout the conference. So that was really a huge area that we identified as being uh, a, a large impact um, and also an opportunity to uh, solve that challenge. Was the hotel open to, to, to dealing with this? Was it, was it easy to, to talk them into it? Yeah, our venues have been awesome to work with um, in Phoenix. We've actually been at the JW Marriott um, properties for the past three years. Mm-hmm. So the first two years we were at the JW Marriott Camelback Inn and now we're at the JW Marriott Desert Ridge and their team has just been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely been a learning experience throughout the process. Um, uh, there's been a lot of staff training involved, but they have been been fantastic to work with. And who have been the partners in, in allowing this to be done? So waste management is our huge uh, zero waste partner. We could not do any of this without them. They have been so helpful um, both in um, just helping us think through our strategy, in the planning process, in actually training the staff, being on the ground, setting up the signage, um, communicating with our attendees, um, and and just tracking the, the waste throughout mm-hmm. the process and making sure that um, everything is happening uh, correctly operationally and that we're actually getting the data from our efforts. Got it. Got it. Now, you mentioned food, and I was excited to hear that um, the the food here, anything, quote, wasted or not consumed, um, there was a special way to deal with that. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah. So food is a huge issue for us. Um, One thing that's really challenging with uh, conferences um, and the hospitality industry in general is that you want to um, always appear to have abundant food available so that attendees aren't worried that you're going to run out of food. So we really try to order um, right to the number of people that we're going to need food for, but the venues always prepare amounts over. So even if we are over on our food numbers, there will still be over-prepared food that will then go to waste. So this year, we're really excited to work with Copia um, on our food waste uh, Mm -hmm. redistribution. Um, Now, rather than either having the food um, be trashed or even composted, um, we're actually redistributing this food to uh, charities in the Phoenix area, which is awesome. Um, This conference so far, we have uh, already generated about 100 pounds of food waste, and it's only day two. Um, and that that food has, and actually not food waste, but food that would have been wasted, um, and that food has gone to feed hungry people. Right. What is the hardest thing for you to deal with? A really hard thing is uh, just education and awareness. We do a lot with our signage, but these uh, efforts can still be really confusing for people. Um, I think one really big example is with uh, disposable coffee cups um, from chains that everybody knows, uh, it it seems that they would, they appear to be recyclable or compostable, but uh, there are materials in the cups that make it not possible to recycle or compost those. So those have actually been a huge waste stream for us. We use all reusable dishware at the conference, but there are always uh, coffee coffee shops on, on sites at our venues. And so attendees will bring those cups to our conferences. Um, those will contaminate the waste streams. And uh, a lot of times also what happens is there's aspirational recycling where attendees think that they're recyclable. They're not recyclable, but they go in the, in the mm-hmm. recycling stream and then get uh, incorrectly processed. Um, so one thing that we're doing this year is working with TerraCycle to uh, change that and capture that waste. Right. Aside from the waste, what else did you do with water and, and other things? 
Yeah. So um, water in particular is really interesting for us. Uh, Phoenix obviously is a really water scarce area, but it's full of golf courses and desert oases. And um, actually being at the Camelback in the past few years, we've been really lucky because they don't, it doesn't appear that they use that much water. They don't have a golf course. All of their landscaping is natural desert landscaping. Um, But when we moved to the JW Desert Ridge, there are golf courses and water features everywhere. So we knew that water was going to be a really big issue for the, for us in coming to this new facility. Um, and we've actually par- partnered with Bonville Environmental Foundation and their Change the Course initiative to offset the water footprint associated with the event. Um, so that has been a new, uh, really exciting area. I'm really excited to see the results of, of that uh, balancing project. And greenhouse gas emissions? Yes. So greenhouse gas emissions obviously is a huge issue for us with attendees traveling from all over the country and internationally in some cases. Um, So uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, we've offset those with the help of uh, Natural Capital Partners. We've been working with them for the past few years. Um, They actually offset the event last year, um, and they offset 500 tons of, of CO2 out of the 492 we produced um, so that has been a, a huge uh, area of impact for us also and, and a big priority for us. What are you going to do different next year? Um, yeah, so that's a really great question. We we What we typically do is we see how we did this year and see what areas we did well in and where we fell down and where we could improve. Um, and, and then we plan from there. Um, the audience or attendee communication, the vendor communication and engagement, those can always be improved. And that's been a learning process. Um, our sponsors are actually also really involved with this program. Waste management has an acceptable materials requirement document that all of our sponsors um, are Uh, We share this with all of our sponsors and the vast majority of them sign it and commit to um, not generating waste at the event, which is awesome. Good luck with next year. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what you do. And thanks thanks for making this effort on our behalf. Thanks so much, Heather. Really appreciate it. And that's our 350 podcast from GreenBiz17 for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find links to the organizations, the stories and the videos and everything else we've talked about in this episode. Thanks, as always, to our intrepid podcast director, Surreal Melconian. Thank you, Heather, for sitting in this week and uh, help being my co-host. We're out. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> you can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back next week. Actually, I won't, but uh, Heather Clancy and Lauren Hepler will be uh, holding down the podcast fort for the week of February 24th. In the meantime, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCowan. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. 